tonight we're in Acts chapter 17, and we're going to talk a lot tonight about the planting of the Thessalonica church. And I love going through this because I love reading the epistles like about, say, for example, 1 Thessalonians and being able to have more understanding of where, who were these people, where did they come from, how did their church get started. Not every single church in the New Testament do we have this kind of recording, but we do have a lot, and they were mostly planted by Paul. Now, last semester, we read about the first missionary journey of uh, Paul, and we got a lot of information on the Galatian churches. So when you read the letter of Galatia of Galatian, it was, all, it, it was all the churches that had been planted in the area of Galatia. Well, here we're going through, and the first church we encountered was the uh, Philippian church. So we've been talking about that last semester and then the beginning of this one, about how the Philippian church got planted. And we met people like Lydia and uh, the, the woman who was demon-possessed and, ha- and had the demon cast out of her, and the jailer who got saved when there was an earthquake. And those people formed the nucleus of the Philippian church. So when you read Philippians, that, that helps you. You know, it helps you read it and go, all right, he's right. this is who Paul has in mind. Paul met these people. He encountered the little prayer group down by the river. And, you know, so he's, he's got them in his heart. And, it, and so it makes more sense when you're reading about it. And so tonight, um, after they left Philippi, they went on to Thessalonica. And we're going to read a lot about the Thessalonian church tonight. So we're actually going to start in Thessalonians because it's going to give us a a better understanding of what's going on here in Acts chapter 17. We'll read verse 1 of Acts 17 first. It says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis, Amphipolis, if that's right. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, by the way. And uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, you'll remember in Philippi, there was no synagogue. And they met the ladies down by the river, specifically because there was no synagogue. But this is really how Paul is used to doing ministry, is going into a city, finding a synagogue where the men were meeting, the Jewish men, and then he would begin to present the gospel. This was kind of his mode of, oper- of operation, and it was the easiest way for him to actually present the gospel because these are Jewish people that had read the Old Testament. They, they'd read and studied the Old Testament prophecies. So to explain to them Jesus really wasn't that hard for a lot of reasons. One big reason being that they were actually expecting a Messiah. So they were expecting a Messiah. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They were a follower of Yahweh. And so for Paul to go in and say, hey, let me show you from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, he already had a great sort of head start there. And so that was kind of how he liked to do ministry. And in Thessalonica, that was how it began. But let's jump to 1 Thessalonians 1. And this was... Uh, 1 Thessalonians was written probably about one year after he visited Thessalonica on this missionary journey in Acts chapter 17. So it was a very recent uh, letter, very very shortly after he had left Thessalonica. And so we're in uh, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1. We're actually going to read the whole first chapter because there's just so much information there. So verse 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is Silas. That name was interchangeable, but that is Silas that you know well that was with him in Philippi in the jail when Paul and Silas started worshiping and the earthquake happened. 
So Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now just a little quick word about Silas. You remember at the beginning of this journey, Paul separated from Barnabas. He and Barnabas were close friends, and we've talked some about that Paul just seemed to have a little trouble keeping companions. Uh, you know. And as you read through the epistles, you find that out. But Silas was one that stuck by him. How do we know that? Well, because this second, second missionary journey has taken place in 49 AD. The first letter to the Thessalonians is written in 50 AD, and Silas is mentioned. Second Thessalonians is written in 51 AD, and Silas is mentioned. Also, on the second missionary journey in just a, in just a few cities, we're going to see that Paul left Silas in Corinth and in some places to actually continue building the churches as he kept traveling. So he trusted Silas enough to leave him there and keep discipling and, and keep winning people to the Lord as he continued to travel, and then they would catch up with him later. And then in 1 Peter, which was written in 62 A.D., so that's a good 12, 13 years later, uh, Peter mentions Silas as being the one who is delivering the letter uh, for him to the Christians that he's writing to. So Silas stayed in the ministry. He was with you know the apostles, even though he wasn't an apostle. He was with the apostles for a long time and seemed to be, you know, involved in their in the early planning of the church. The church is very heavily involved. So verse 2, continuing in 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now remember, he's thinking of people specifically, and we're going to read about some of them in a minute. When we read this, it's like, well, who are these people? Well, we'll, we'll find out when we read in Acts. But Paul has specific people in mind. It'd be kind of like if I left here after 12 years and I wrote a letter back to y'all. Like, I'm not just, you know, to the people of one life. It's like, no, I've got names, people, you know, that we've prayed with, ate with, talked with. It's, it's very close to his heart. So he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly mentioning you in our prayers Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in words. So now he's telling a little bit about the first encounter, which we're going to read about in Acts 17. But he says, we, because the gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. So there we get a little something else about this first encounter, that apparently we're going to see some affliction and problems. He said, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only... Has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So this first whole chapter is him writing back saying, hey, remember the time we had together. Man, I was encouraged by your, 
faith and the way we had affliction, but you kept joy. And he said, what, what you guys started in Thessalonica, it went beyond so that when I got to other cities, they already knew about you. I didn't even have to tell them about the great work that God did in Thessalonica. He said, because it, it preceded you. It went ahead of me that by the time I got to some of these other places, they were already hearing about the work that God had done in Thessalonica. So that gives us a little insight of kind of what, what happened there. Now, if you remember, going back to Acts 17.1, uh, and uh, we can show the map, Shane, if we have that, the uh, second missionary journey map. But you'll see that, that we didn't stop at every city. You'll notice Paul does not stop at every city, and, and we just skip over these cities very quickly. But they went from Philippi, and it specifically mentions that they passed through, I'm going to butcher it again, Amphipolis, something like that, okay, and Apollonia. So it mentions that they passed through those cities and they skipped ahead to Thessalonica. In this case, we're not told why. Sometimes we are told why, but for whatever reason, the, the Lord wasn't with them, there wasn't a work. And, and this is important for us to pay attention to, you know, because... Even Jesus told his disciples, he said, when you go from city to city, he said, look, if they receive you, then share the word of God with them, give them the gospel. He said, if they reject it, he said, wipe the, feet from your du- wipe the dust from your feet and go on to the next, the next city. And that may sound harsh, but the disciples did that. And then that's kind of what you see Paul doing here is if there was no door they didn't stay there and work the thing for two, three years trying to get somebody converted. It was like they were working with the Holy Spirit. And you read about that in First Thessalonians when he talks about it. He says the Holy Spirit, it didn't just come to you in word. It came with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, you, could, you know, the Holy Spirit was working with us. So they didn't stop everywhere. Every city wasn't saved. They didn't have fruit in every single city. But if you're not careful, you read over it. If you, you can read it and you can think that because you just you skip over these cities where it says they passed through. But remember, that, that took time. They didn't have cars and, you know, they, maybe they're on a donkey or they're on foot and they're carrying all their gear. And it took time to get through that city. And undoubtedly, they may, maybe attempted to spread the gospel there and there was no door and the Holy Spirit, and they just went on to the next one. We don't really know the reasons why. But it's important for us because the disciples, Paul the Apostle, Peter, they didn't have nothing but successes one after the other. And, and we may not get a lot of information about the moments that it didn't work, but in the Christian life, it's that way too. You don't just have one success after another with no failures and, and no problems and no setbacks. It doesn't work like that. You know, and, and you may have fruit with somebody you're working with. And man, you, you tell someone about Jesus and you're working with someone and they give their life to God and they're never the same again. And then you may work with five people that they don't. And that's one of the discouraging, that can be one of the discouraging parts about the ministry. But notice the mindset. Hey, we love you, but we're wiping the dust from our feet and we're moving on to the next place. And when we find a place that is receptive, we're going to pour. And sometimes they would stay there for months. Sometimes they would stay there for weeks as long as there was an open door and there was, there was fruit. So there's a lot of lessons in that for us. You know, I've learned that being in ministry. You can't be discouraged 
uh, by working with somebody and don't, you don't have any fruit or you don't have any results. If, if I got discouraged every time, you know, we invested in somebody or tried to help somebody and it didn't turn out right, I probably wouldn't be in the ministry. You got to overlook it and, and move on. You know, go to the next person. And there's a lot of people that want help. And there's a lot of people that are hungry and a lot of people that want change. And so that's what they did. They moved on through these cities until they got to Thessalonica. Now, had the cities, the other cities been different, maybe we would have an epistle in the New Testament called the letter to the Apollonians. But that didn't happen. They skipped through them and they went to Thessalonica. So... They didn't stop everywhere, and they didn't have fruit everywhere. But where they did have fruit, they, they stayed as long as the Holy Spirit allowed them. So here they, they go, and there is a synagogue. Let's read verse 1 again. Now when they had passed through, there we go again. Y'all going to laugh at me all night. I'm not reading it. I'm skipping it. That one place and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. See, there we see that I told, we had said this before that this was his custom. This was his way of ministering. This is how he was used to doing. This was, you know, his mode of, oper, of operation. So Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, which would have been three weeks because the Sabbath came once a week. On three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from... The scriptures. So Paul was a Jewish man, which gave him a right in the synagogue to discuss the, the scriptures with other Jewish men. And so for three weeks, each Sabbath day, he goes and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul had a lot of knowledge, and this is how he would convert people to the gospel. He would take the Old Testament and he would literally preach to them from the Old Testament. He would take Old Testament prophecies like from the book of Isaiah where it says, by his stripes we are healed, you know, and, and by his wounds and, and all these things. He would talk about them. He would reason from the Old Testament scripture and he would explain Christ through Old Testament passages, through the book of Psalms and, and different things like that. So, he reasoned with them from the scripture, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Now, I'm pausing here because this is who begins to make up the, the, the core of the Thessalonica church. So we got to read it closely. He says, some of them were persuaded, some of the Jews, some of the believing Jews were persuaded, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. So we have some Jews, but we get many devout Greeks. And this is a pattern that we keep seeing going all the way back several chapters. This is a pattern that we keep seeing, which is that the Greeks, the Gentiles, the people that are supposedly, you know, lesser than the, the sort of scum of the earth in the eyes of the Jews, these are the people that keep responding to the gospel. 
And the Jews, whom were God, God's chosen people, they keep rejecting it. This, this keeps happening. But some of them were persuaded and joined Paul, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. So here's another kind of key player that we hear about. Attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So do we see this pattern over and over again? Same thing. I mean, we have seen this in so many cities up to this point where the gospel is preached and there's fruit. Then some of the Jews, they, they poisoned them. We read in one place where they poisoned the minds of the, of the others. Actually, that was in Acts 14 uh, on the first missionary journey. I'll just read real quick what it said there. It says, Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greek believed. Doesn't that, that sounds almost the exact same. A great number of Jews and Greeks believed, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brother. It doesn't use that word poison, but same thing, same thing going here. So what you start to see is that Paul has a method of operation, but then Satan has a method of operation. And every time the gospel comes, this is how this is this is how the gospel works in all of our lives. When somebody hears the gospel, their heart may be open and receptive. They hear it, and I believe that you know every person is a spirit that's created by God that recognizes truth when they hear it. I think when, when a person hears truth that's anointed by God, they hear the gospel that's being preached with anointing and preached with faith, I think that there's, there's something in their spirit that goes, I don't know what that is, but I need that. But just because they recognize that does not mean that they're going to receive salvation. There's a lot of people that hear the word and, uh, and almost would believe, almost would, would come up to that edge and, and almost believe. And guess what? Then Satan begins to work too. Or their own flesh begins to work. Or their own sin nature begins to work to do what? Well, as the word of God says, to choke out that seed that tried to be planted in, that, in, in the ground. And Jesus gave that parable where he talked about the seed being sown on different types of soil. And when Jesus gave the example, it was only 25% of the, of, the, of the seed that was sown that actually took root and produced fruit and caused the harvest to come in. A lot of it fell, the Bible says, on the hard ground or by the road or it was choked out by thorns. So there's a lot of things that can, that can happen in between the time a person receives the gospel and the time that that gospel takes root in their soul and can transform them and change their life. And Satan is at work, and people's sin nature is at work. Why am I saying all this? Well, first of all, it helps us understand what our job is as the church. 
The job of the church is not only to cast seed, is not only to preach the gospel, even though that's an enormous part of what we do, but also the job of the church is to come alongside people that are in the process of receiving that seed, that haven't decided one way or the other, and maybe they're very, or maybe they're like the, the ground that, the, the seed that fell in the, you know, in the thorny ground, and the seed has taken root, but there's a lot of things trying to choke it out right now, and if somebody doesn't come alongside them and, and help them and pray with them and instruct them and pastor them and disciple them, then maybe that thing is going to get choked out. So the job of the church is not only to preach the Word of God, but also to disciple people that are what we would say new, new Christians, baby Christians, people that are maybe in danger of not you know, sticking firm and staying, staying close. So we're talking about this because we see this process at work where when the seed is sown, yeah, but still Satan comes and fights it and combats it in a person's life. I believe that prayer is very instrumental in this process. I've seen a lot of people that were struggling, that they had the correct information, they had the, the gospel preached to them accurately and clearly, that wasn't the problem, but they're in that process of struggle, and thank God they had somebody in their life that was praying for them. They had a mother, or they had a grandmother, or they had a friend, they had someone who's praying that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened, and their spiritual eyes would be flooded with light, that their heart would be open to the gospel, and through those prayers, then the gospel takes root. Man, it, I wish it was as easy as just preach the word. It takes root on every heart that it hits. Man, wouldn't that be easy? Our job would be a lot simpler <laughs> as the church, but it doesn't work like that. And even as Jesus preached, it seems to be a smaller percentage that that happens. A lot of times people have to have someone come alongside them, someone pray for them, someone fight for them, someone stand in the gap for them to make sure that they get what they, what they needed to get. I mean, how many of us in here tonight could give a, the testimony that, okay, maybe the word didn't just have, you know, it didn't just produce the fruit that it needed to at first hearing, but there was somebody who stood by me. There was somebody who called me. There was somebody who said, hey, you going to church this morning? I'm coming to get you. Or, you know, they text you or they prayed for you or whatever. And thank God for those people. You know, I mean, thank God that we have people that do that and so that's the job of the church but when I say the church that means us as individuals as a collective group and that's one of the things that I love about our church is I feel like the people in our church have that heart and they have that mindset that no matter where you're at in the faith if you're new if you're mature if you've saved six months or you saved 10 years 20 years it doesn't matter you're welcome and we want to meet you where you're at and help you grow, you know, in your faith. And that's one of the things we've talked a lot about as a church is that's why you can't, you can't judge a person when they walk in because you don't know where they're at in that process, you know. And the church is here to help all kinds of people. And, uh, you know, it's so important to me that our church be a place that if it's the first time you're hearing the gospel or you've heard it for 20 years, that this is a place where you can come and feel comfortable and grow from wherever you're at. So having said all that, um, 
I want to I want to spend some time on this too because so that that's the general heart of it, right? Is is anybody we want anybody that's willing, anybody that wants to hear, anybody that wants to grow, we want to, and even fight for some that don't know yet that they need to hear it or that they want it, but they're in that that battle. But then there's this other side of it too that we were talking about a minute ago, which is we shouldn't just spend an enormous amount of time uh, trying to convince people that have already rejected the gospel, if that makes sense. And that's what we see here, is you see a group that wanted it, and they're going for it, and so Paul, they fight with that, but then you have another, what the Bible calls wicked people. Listen to what he says. It says, some of them were persuaded, many devout Greeks, few leading women, we're in verse 5 of Acts 17, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So a lot of Christians, a lot of churches get caught up in fighting the culture. You know, like, you know, always come, they get on Facebook, and then they, they fight these battles, you know, and they argue, and they debate, and I don't even get interested in that. I don't, I don't even get caught up in that, because there's a, there's a group of people that are wanting to hear the word, and they believe the message, and they want to hear the message, and that's where I'm going to spend my time. I'm not going to spend my time fighting uh, the, the culture, and sometimes that's how, you know, Christian churches see themselves is, you know, to, to engage the culture, fight with the culture. That's not really, I don't see that as our primary call. I think our primary call is to identify those ones that want, that receive the message by faith, disciple them, pastor them, help them as much as possible. And that's what we, that's what we strive to do. So we saw that again in Acts 14. Same thing. There were some that believed, but then their minds were poisoned. This, this got so bad that even in Acts 13, we see this, Acts 13, 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was, they're talking to Jews now because this process keeps happening over and over again. They say it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So in Acts 13, they made that decree that because they kept seeing this problem. Everywhere we go, the Jews are fighting us. The Jews are against us. But the Gentiles, they seem wide open to the gospel. They seem wide open to the gospel. And we could spend time talking about in the modern church, we could spend time talking about how sometimes the greatest obstacles to growth, progress, advancement in the church is actually not worldly people. Sometimes it's religious people. And that, that's been a problem in churches for a long time. And it's the same issue. It's the same issue that they're facing here. It's almost like, man, if you could just deal with lost people... And people that are hungry, people that don't already have preconceived ideas about what church is and what Bible is, and you could just, they could come in kind of with a blank mind and a blank slate, and you could just work with them. Life might be a little easier sometimes in churches. But that's the same issue you see here. Sometimes it's not the lost people that are causing a problem. Sometimes it's religious people that have been so 
infected with just religiosity that, and they don't have a true relationship with God. And those people sometimes are harder to deal with than people that are just lost. And that's what they're dealing with here. They, 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 in one sense, you would think the Jews should be the perfect group of people to receive the gospel because they already serve God. They already have the only Bible that exists at that time, which was the Old Testament. <clears throat> Many of them are already practicing. They're in the synagogue every week. So you, you would think the Jews are the perfect group of people to receive the gospel, but they're the most resistant. Isn't that something? And I don't, I've always recognized that and seen that in Scripture, and it's always made me pause and go, man, how do I keep my heart tender and sensitive before the Lord so that that doesn't become me? And that ought to be our prayer when we read this, because everyone in this room actually more likely probably identifies with the Jews than we do the Gentile, because we've been in church for so long, we've been, many of us, we've been saved for so long, that that tendency can, can creep in if you're not careful. And so it's important that we make sure our heart remains tender and humble before the Lord and that we stay seeking and, and stay uh, pursuing the Lord and His Word. So they got to that point where this was the first missionary journey. They got to the point where they said, look, it was necessary that the Word be spoken to you first. Why? Because you're the covenant people of God. I mean, God, you're supposed to be receiving this. It was necessary the word of God be spoken to you first, but you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And from that day forward, that tended to be a focus uh, of Paul's ministry, even if unintentionally, because we still see, <laughs> maybe he's hard-headed, but we still see him going to the synagogues, dealing with the Jewish people, going go there. And you see through Paul's other writings how much he loved the Jewish people. I mean, he, he said, these are my brothers. And he said, you know, I would give my life for them if it meant they could come to the gospel. He said, I, you know, I pray for them. I believe for them. He, he wanted them to come to the knowledge of Christ. And he even warned the Gentiles one time. He said, look, you, you, think, you might come to think that you're special because God, you know, cut them off and grafted you in. You know, but he said, if, but you need to stay in the course that you're going and you need to stay because if not, don't think that he can't break you off and graft them back in. <laughs> so it kind of was a warning. But it's important to see this because there, there was a switch at some point and you're kind of reading about it there was a switch at some point where maybe call it the grace to the grace for Jewish people to receive the gospel sort of lifted and the focus switched to Gentiles and you're literally reading about it in these passages and even to this day praise God we've got Jewish people that come to Christ you know messianic Jews and and the gospel is open for everyone, every tribe, every it, it doesn't matter. That's not the issue, but by and large, you do see that the Jewish people are not open to the gospel, and that the the Bible talks about a, a hardening that has taken place, or you know, a, a blindness that has taken place. But that's not from from Bible prophecy. That's not always going to be there. There is going to be a change in that. But you're reading about that process where 
it shifted the focus on the Jewish people fo- switched to the Gentiles and the Gentiles from there from this point forward it was just the the non-Jewish people that begin to receive the gospel and this is a significant moment in scripture it's not that significant to us because we're all Gentiles pretty much and we've been living in America and so we're used to this idea that hey gospel's for everybody but it wasn't always like that and actually this was an issue they struggled with all the way through the New Testament. You're going to read in the epistles. You're going to read about Peter and Paul button heads over this issue. About, you know, the Gentiles and the Jews and who should be first and who should have higher priority. And, you know, the, the, it was an issue all through the New Testament. So, I just love Paul's, you know, heart and attitude and... You know, we're going we're gonna to preach the gospel to whoever receives it, and it doesn't matter who they are or what they look like or, you know, what their background is or, you know, what their ethnicity is or what their wealth status is or none of that mattered. None of that mattered. And that's how true gospel preaching and ministry should be. So, let's see where we're at here. Okay, so... That's that's the that is the gist of what happened there. Um, I'm trying to see if I've got the. Yeah, that is that is the gist of what happened in Thessalonica. I think we read everything. That's all we get is these kind of short six verses. Uh, they go there. They're there for three weeks. This is kind of the summary. They're there for three weeks. They have some fruit. With believing Jews, they said a great many Greeks believed. Some of the leading women believed. And then there was this guy, Jason. And Jason opened his house to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And they were staying there. And then he ends up receiving a lot of persecution because of that. They drag him out in the street, right, because he's a local. So they're mad at him. Why are you supporting these guys? These guys who've turned the world upside down everywhere else that they go. They've come here now. And you've supported them. You've helped them. You're giving them quarter. You're giving them lodging. And so he's dragged out, taken to jail, and has to pay, uh, you know, has to pay to get out. So that's kind of the, uh, the people that we meet here. In Thessalonica, that's basically the the group. Now, I want to read to you out of First Thessalonians chapter two, because we're going to get a lot more information about what happened in those three weeks. We already read First uh, Thessalonians one, but in chapter two of First Thessalonians, we get a lot more information as well. We get a lot more information about you know a lot of a lot of details about what what went on. So 1 Thessalonians 2. I do want to say this about Jason before we go on, because this is the only kind of real mention of him here that we read. But most scholars believe that Jason is the same person mentioned in Romans 16.21. And so Romans 16.21, Paul is closing out the book of Romans, and he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greet you, so do Lucius and Jason and Sospiter, my kinsman. So Jason is mentioned there. So apparently, Jason went on to work with Paul later. So that's just a little piece of information. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
verse 1, giving us a little more information about what happened there. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, meaning there was fruit. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, well, what's he talking about? We, we know what he's talking about because at Philippi, they were beat, they were thrown in prison, and they had a hard, they had a hard time there, but they had a lot of fruit there. So he says, but <clears throat> though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction or in the midst of much conflict. And again, these are things we just read over, but think about what he's saying. He's saying, well, I actually needed that. Hold on a minute. He's saying, even though we suffered in Philippi, even though we had massive trouble, even though it was a lot of problems, we still continued on our journey. We still came to you. You know, Paul, these guys, they could have turned around. Just think about what happened in Philippi. That was rough. You know, your life was threatened. They could have just turned around after that point. I mean... How many times have, have you been discouraged and wanted to quit? Maybe you did quit. You know, you, you want to just turn around and be done. Thank God that they knew how to persevere because they didn't know that this kind of stuff wasn't just more of that awaiting them from city to city to city. Everywhere they go, they're going to just have more problems, more beatings. I mean, they might have wanted a vacation after this, you know, but they, they kept going. And had they not kept going, there would have been no fruit in Thessalonica, and that's really the point that he's making. He said, you know that we suffered and were shamefully treated at Philippi, but we had boldness in our God. We had confidence in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. Man, that's why I love, that's why I love Paul. And talking about, well, we're not going to get on that. Never mind that. We'll get sidetracked on that. Verse 3, for, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery. See, he's talking again about their time in Thessalonica and how it happened. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, (coughs) we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers For you know how, like a father with his children, 
we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. So that just gives us a little more insight into the way Paul was was ministering and kind of the things that were going on there and about the relationship that he had with each of these people. You could see that, you know, they were very dear to him. And, I mean, he was only there for three weeks, as far as we can tell from Acts chapter 17. They were only there for three weeks. But, you know, he saw this church planted and he saw these people endure persecution and, and, and uh, affliction and come together and remain, remain strong. You know, one of the things I think about when I read these stories over and over again, o- almost none of these churches were planted without persecution. I mean, I, I don't think we've read about one yet that wasn't planted without some sort of extreme resistance, uh, persecution, affliction, pain, and, and it being just very costly for them. And that's one of the reasons probably that they did not have a very high turnover in the church. I mean, the people that joined were probably there for life because no one would have joined that wasn't 100% serious about God and about being part of the church. Every single person that was joining that church was a true convert because it cost them everything to join and, and to be part of it. Well, that's very different than what we see in America. And there was a time in America where being part of a church, going to church, uh, being a Christian, it really was the end thing. It was, it was the accepted thing. And actually, I mean, there was a time in, in America where if you didn't go to church and you didn't call yourself a Christian, you were kind of looked at as like an outcast. And so it became sort of this cultural pressure, like, oh, you, you know, you got to go to church and you got to be a Christian and that kind of thing. Even in politics, like people would say they were Christians, even if they weren't, just because no one's going to vote for you if you don't profess some sort of religion. And how many of you have seen that change in America? And it's affecting the church. You know, it's affecting... And so, in one way, you read these statistics and they say, well, you know, oh man, every year, you know, 10%, every few years, 10% of people less, you know, believe in God as they did before or or profess Christ as they did before. Or, you know, I read you a statistic recently where uh, I think it was only 30% or maybe even 20%, but I'll say 30% of Christians say they believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. And I would say you can't even be a Christian if you don't believe that, but that's how they labeled them. 30% of self-professing Christians, only 30% said that they believe the Bible is the inspired Word of God, 
Well, so I, don't, I don't even believe that you can be a Christian if you don't believe that. Um, and so we see numbers like that and we think, oh man, all these people are turning away from God or they're not following. And, and so for sure, yeah, there, there are some people that are turning away from God. The Bible talks about that that would happen in the last days, that there would be a great falling away. There would be an apostasy, the Bible calls it, which means a falling away or a rebellion. Um, against God and against the things of God. But also some of what we're seeing is people that that just never really had to pay any kind of price. And so the moment that there is some sort of price or some sort of persecution or some sort of difficulty in being a Christian, it's just easier for them to walk away. You know, I don't really know if I believe all this stuff anyway. I don't know that if I ever believed it. And half of them weren't living it anyway. They weren't living it. They weren't reading their Bible, they weren't going to church, they weren't living the Christian life, and they had the label of Christian. You know, this has been very confusing for a lot of people. It's very confusing for a lot of young people. I know I've had my children ask, because they see somebody on TV that seemingly has no corresponding life, uh, but then says, I'm a Christian. And they go, really? I mean, my kids go, wait, can that, dad, you're the expert, is that person saved? I mean, well, it's really hard to just, you know, look at a person and say if they're saved or not. But I'll tell you this, they don't have any corresponding fruit. <laughs> and I'll say this, that if, if I were them, I would not be confident in my salvation and in my position with God. But I can't tell you whether they're saved or not because that's between them and God. But best I can tell, they have reason for concern. <laughs> it's my very diplomatic way of, you know. But... That's not, you know, and I'm just saying this because we look around and the nation is in a unique place, at least that I've ever seen it. Some of you are older than me and you, you know, maybe you've seen other decades, but I'm looking at the nation right now going, man, there seems to be a switch and a shift in the nation as far as how people view Christianity and the popularity of being Christian. And that's been going on for a while, but it's, it's getting, it's getting worse and worse and it's, it's getting to a point where even, you know, a lot of churches are seeing attendance declines and things like that. But what are we really seeing? What, what we're really seeing is you're just seeing whether or not it's actually worth it to you to live for God. Is it worth it to you to go to church regularly? Is it worth it to you to bear the name of... Is it, is it worth it to you to pro- profess that you believe these things that other people are discounting and making fun of and... Is it worth it to you when everyone around you is thinking these crazy thoughts about gender and marriage and sexuality and all these things, and you're the only, you're, you feel like you're the only sane person, like, am I the weird one, or is everyone else the weird one? Well, you know, which is it? And it's hard to be in that position. But these churches that we're reading about, that was the norm for them. That, that was how their faith was birthed. Their faith was birthed in persecution. Their their faith was birthed in affliction. So from day one, for them, being a Christian meant sacrifice. From day one, for them, being being a Christian meant having to lay other things down and this being very costly for me. For a lot of Americans, for a while, they could walk into church and they could give their life to Jesus and walk out and not really a whole lot changed for them. Other than maybe, oh, we stop doing a few little things here and there and we stop, you know, we drop a few little sins. But as far as real persecution and real affliction and real sacrifice, 
There wasn't really much to it. So when Christianity actually starts costing people something, we're not used to that. When it actually starts being costly and it actually starts requiring sacrifice, there's a lot of Christians that they're like, whoa, I, I didn't sign up for this. I thought being a Christian was going to make my life better. And that's how it's presented to a lot of people is, man, come to God, everything will get better. And it will in a lot of ways. But that's not the full picture. And that's not the full picture that Jesus presented when he presented the gospel. He said, this is going to cost you everything. You, there has to be a crucifixion. You have to die to self, die to dreams, die to desires. Be willing to face persecution. Be willing to proclaim me boldly before others, and I'll proclaim you before my Father in heaven. This was the message that he preached. And this was built in to Christianity through all of these churches. And, and you see the planting of these churches as we go through it. This was, this was the default. This was built in. To become a Christian is going to be painful, costly, expensive, and sacrificial. Do you still want to do this? For many of them, they were kicked out of the synagogue. For many of these ones we're reading about in Thessalonica, they were never allowed in the synagogue again. Their standing was forever changed in that city. Now they had to begin meeting in secret, looked at as the weirdos, you know, those weirdo groups, that weirdo group. Maybe they were looked at as a cult, you know, and that it cost them everything. So when, when you give your life to Christ under those circumstances, can you see the difference between that and how many people were giving their life to Christ in America for the longest time? Where it didn't cost you anything? I'm not saying you can't be saved if it doesn't cost you anything. I'm not saying that at all. But I, what I'm saying is, is people got used to it not costing them anything so that when it did start costing them something, a lot of people were like, whoa, I, I don't know about all this. And that's been a problem. And that is, I'm just talking through why we're seeing some of the decline that we're seeing in America. The decline that we're seeing in America is not all just people going, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, and they're walking away. Is there some of that? Well, first of all, nobody wakes up who is a true believer and a true Christian. Nobody wakes up one morning and just goes, you know, I don't think I believe all this stuff. And I, I don't know if I want to follow it anymore. That's not how it works anyway. There is a process of deception. There's a process of yielding to things. There's a process of listening to things and allowing things in your mind that you shouldn't have been. And it's a slow process. And it doesn't happen over, you know, just one, one day. But it, it's a long process that happens. One of the clearest ways that we see it happen is, for example... If a young person goes off to college and they have an uh, atheistic professor who's, you know, speaking lies into their mind every day, day after day, day after day, day after day, for semester after semester, until eventually they've bought those lies and now they don't even know what they believe. That can happen. And, and that can happen. And there's so many lies right now. The world is filled with deception, filled with lies. You can, you can open YouTube. You could get on any internet site and you can find discussions about any topic you can you can hear read articles you can get find science you can find podcasts about any any subject any topic people saying crazy things about anything and if you listen to it long enough is that going to affect you yes it is because that's how the mind works 
if you, whatever you listen to, your mind is going to be renewed to that. Faith comes by hearing, the Bible says, and by hearing of the Word of God. Yeah, but faith also comes for wrong things and for lies by hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing as well. If you're feeding on lies constantly and, and you're feeding on wrong information constantly, that's going to change what you believe. That's how faith works. That's what faith is. So for a long time, I found it very interesting to listen to, you know, debates on, uh, you know, an atheist versus a believer. And, you know, I would listen to those things. And, and uh, this was years ago. And I enjoyed doing that because I liked, you know, forming my opinions even stronger and stronger. But there was a point where I was like, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. I don't know if this is helpful or not, hearing all these thoughts and all these things against Christianity. I'm like, I don't, I don't know that that's helping me. And so I stopped listening to things. Because it was changing me? No. But because I understand the power of how these things work. And that Satan's always looking for a door to get in your mind to spread lies and feed lies into your mind. We have to understand this for our children also. We're talking about that on Sundays. And Satan is always... That's why sometimes our, we wake up and our kids are off track and we go, wait, where did they adopt that belief? Where did they start thinking that? Well, they're in a, a public school system that's feeding them things all, even from just their friends that they might be getting fed all the time from the television, from internet, that they're, it's feeding lies all the time. And then you just didn't see it, but then you see the fruit all of a sudden. You, you didn't, may not see the process, but then you wake up and you go, man, they're this way. They're thinking this way. This isn't good. Well, that didn't happen overnight either. That's a process. So I'm, I'm making this last point as we close out that you'll notice as we read through every one of these churches the conditions with which these churches were birthed in. They were very challenging, very painful, very difficult, very sacrificial situations. And what's happening in the nation now is that's happening to us slowly. It's becoming more difficult. It's becoming more sacrificial. It's becoming more costly to be a Christian, even though it doesn't even compare at all with what they were dealing with. It's just the conditions are changing slightly, and you're seeing people drop like flies all over the nation. Now, our church, actually, I mean, our church is growing, so I don't, that's not the case everywhere. But I'm talking about on a national scale, you see Christianity changing in this nation. And look, I just want you to be encouraged, okay? When you look around, I don't want you to think, oh, man, all these people are walking away from God or people are leaving the faith and our world is in, is in turmoil and, and all of that. Yeah, that is happening. But I'm going to tell you this, that the Lord knows those who are his. And I believe that even in the midst of seeing people falling away from the Lord, that the true church is going to rise. The true church is going to rise up. And I hold on to that hope. I hold on to that hope that, man, yeah, I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of bad things over here, but I'm also believing that the, the Bible tells us that the church of Jesus Christ is never going to fail, that he's going to be building that church all the way till he comes back. And we're part of that. We get to be part of that. And so we have each other to pray for one another, help one another, discuss the word together so that we, we grow together and we stay strong in the Lord and that we don't find ourselves, you know, falling off by the wayside. Amen. Amen. 